Don Bentley and I sat down to discuss his time flying an Apache helicopter in Afghanistan, his time grooming sources for the FBI, writing both the Jack Ryan Jr. novels and Matt Drake novels, including his upcoming novel, Forgotten War. He recounted his harrowing part flying a rescue mission in Operation Red Wings, popularized by the novel and movie Lone Survivor, written by retired Navy SEAL Marcus Luttrell. We also discussed how impactful the withdrawal from Afghanistan has been on veterans, how biometric and personal information is no longer safe in government hands, and much more. And now, here is Don Bentley. Hello and welcome to The Arsenic Show. Today I have with me Don Bentley. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Robert. Yeah, yeah. It's good to see you down here. Uh, and you live in the Austin area. I do. I live okay. just north of Austin, so okay. up in Round Rock, yeah. So that wasn't too bad. I mean, it was a good hour. That's how much <laughs> I love you right now, So I'm willing to come into Austin for you. So. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I've, I've definitely done the drive a couple times where it was, I, it looks on the... It looks like a 15 minutes. It's a yeah. quick little drive. Yeah. Nope, not. It, you know what's hysterical? Not to get all talking about traffic, but the, <laughs> the express lane, what I love is when I'm in the normal lane and it's just sitting there and I just uh, wave to them uh, as I go by. I'm uh, like, suckers! Oh, uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I can't get on in time. I'm like, oh, yeah, damn. yeah. Or choices. I, or, or I think, oh, it's going pretty good. I don't need to do that yeah. today. Nope. Yeah. Famous nope. last words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we're here to talk about a couple of things. Um, You have a pretty crazy career. Um, I do. All all kinds of crazy stuff happened. Um, So I don't know if going chronologically makes the right sense or not. Um, It's just kind of, I guess, the easiest way to understand it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So maybe we'll just start with kind of the beginning. Um, So why don't you tell us a little bit about getting into the military, kind of like what was your impetus for doing that and kind of how that all started? Yeah, so my wife likes to talk, tell people that I can't figure out what I want to be when I grow up, and so there's probably a lot of truth to that, but uh, <laughs> I grew up in a family. Uh, my dad had served in Vietnam, my grandfather had served in World War II, and uh, I like to say I'm the first member of my family who voluntarily served, but I knew from a pretty young age I wanted to serve in the military. Um, I was... My dad was a pilot, and so I grew up, um, he did, he did it uh, com- not commercially, but just in little planes, teaching people stuff like that. And so I grew up flying and flying with him and wanted to do that and thought I could either go in the Air Force or the Army. And the problem with the Air Force is that if you can't fly, there aren't a whole lot of other fun things to do while in the Army, man. They let you blow stuff up and <laughs> repel off buildings. And so I was... I had a uh, Army ROTC scholarship to go to the Ohio State University and uh, then was commissioned in aviation, was lucky enough to fly Apaches afterwards. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's pretty badass. It is, and it's it's funny because your very first day of flight school, they invite your spouse to come too. And so the instructor says, we're going to give your spouse a test, and based on the results of that test, it'll determine what helicopter you fly. And so everybody gets a little nervous about that. So my wife came in and they gave her the questions and it was, you know, if your husband or wife is a very meticulous, detail-oriented person, they're probably going to fly Blackhawks. And it gets all the way down to if your husband or wife likes to light things on fire and watch them burn, they are probably going to be an Apache pilot. And she pointed at me and I'm like, yeah, that's that's the one for me. <laughs> I already had a reputation before yes. it even started. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Interesting. So how, what is the actual selection process? Can you tell me? Yeah, so it's a it's, um, little bit of both. It's a little bit of a OML or order of merit list where as you're going through flight school, there's the um, flying part of it that you get graded on. There's the academics part. And then at the same time, 
there's the um, quintessential needs of the Army, which mm. trumps everything else. And so I was very fortunate that I scored pretty well through flight school. And at the same time, the Army had a really big need for Apache pilots at that time. So I was lucky. Other folks, the Army always gives you the opportunity to ask uh, what you want. But the army doesn't always listen to what you're saying, and so I was very, very lucky that those did, two did things you, lined you, up together. Did you ask? Did you? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. Oh, you were very clear. I, I was very clear. Yeah. Okay. So you fill out that they there comes the the day towards the end of flight school where you fill out your own order of merit list and you rank, you know, which helicopter that you got to fly. And I'm like, dear lord, just please don't let me fly Blackhawks. That's all <laughs> I'm asking you right now. Don't let me fly Blackhawks. Would it have been that bad? I mean, you know, at least you've been in the air. I would have been the butt of the jokes instead of the one making them. So this is a true story. I had a friend of mine who was an Apache pilot who deployed to Afghanistan and he was out with an infantry unit. And this tells you how much that created the aircraft stays with you. And he was sitting in, you know, the Porta John and a mortar hit next door and knocked him out and so they grabbed him and were throwing him into the ambulance. And he's like, get off me. I'm not a Blackhawk pilot. And that, <laughs> that is how, uh, how much it's ingrained to you what aircraft you fly. <laughs> and God help you if you're a Chinook, right? <laughs> <laughs> the flying dump truck, yes. You know, the, it's true. And there is a lot of good-natured ribbon. But once you go to combat with those folks and you see, you know, a Chinook hovering on the side of the mountain with just that ramp balance there so guys can run on it or you – watch a black hawk fly down a valley that's very barely big enough than the rotors of that black hawk and you're like maybe i won't make any jokes today right yeah <laughs> or those like really super specialized black hawks that the seals have or whatever and like that's those the 160th birds yeah so we did um in afghanistan we uh supported the 160th quite a bit because their daps which is what you're well they have the normal Blackhawks and then the armed Blackhawks and their armed Blackhawks were all in Iraq and their little birds uh, can't operate in that part of Afghanistan because it's too high and stuff. And so it's a little bit unusual. General purpose aviation doesn't often um, have those kind of customers, but we got to do it some in Afghanistan. Yeah. What I understand about Afghanistan is it's so high up. A mm -hmm. lot of the helicopters literally can't do it. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. They can get to a certain altitude and then they're done. That's absolutely right. So we were the first longbows into Afghanistan. And the reason why that's significant is the longbow was three or 4,000 pounds heavier than the Alpha model, but it had the same engines. And so it was way, way underpowered. So before we even went, we tore off all the, um, the radar. We tore off the Hellfire racks. We just used 30 millimeter and rockets while we were there. And we took out like all the different black boxes that we could and we still didn't, in the summertime, we still didn't have enough power to hover. And it was funny, um, in flight school, when I went through, most of our instructors were all old Vietnam guys, and they would tell stories, and we'd be like, whatever, Grandpa. And the one, uh, my instructor pilot liked to tell a lot, and he said, in Vietnam, we were so underpowered, we had to choose between gas and bullets. And I'm like, sure you were. And then there I was in <laughs> Afghanistan sitting in the FARP and they had to do it by hand. And the longbow, it's a little computer screen that updates the weight and balance. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I don't have enough. Do I want more gas or more bullets? And I'm like, one day I'm going to be that old guy. I'm like, let me buy you a beer and tell you stories. So yeah, it was a little, it was humbling in a lot of ways. We didn't lose any um, Apaches to enemy fire while we were in Afghanistan, but we lost two uh, to guys overflying the environment because you didn't you didn't have power to hover out of ground effect at all and in ground effect 
what you would do is kind of bounce along the ground and try and get at about 18 to 20 knots. What happens is the forward airspeed cleans up the rotors. And so it gets more efficient. And so what you had to do was get to 18 knots before you hit the HESCO barrier on the other side. And so you're bouncing, 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 and you're like, Oh, I kind of got it. And then go over the other side. And so, oh, that's harrowing. yeah, I, I'd, I tell people I didn't get shot at that many times, but I almost killed myself flying about every day in the summertime. Wow. So it, it was Why sketchy. summertime specifically. Yeah. So what happens is when it's hot and high, um, the engines are controlled by a computer that's called the digital engine control unit. And so what happens is that little black box keeps the engine from overheating. And the way it keeps the engine from overheating is it regulates the amount of fuel that goes into it. So when you're hot already, because it's hot outside and you're high, which means there's very little air um, to be able to cool the engine, they heat up that much faster. And so what happens, and I'm a good pilot, so I'm using my hands, you have a stick over here that's called the collective, and you pull it in and you're asking the engine for more power, but that little box limits you and refuses to dump more fuel in. And so then what happens if you're not careful is your rotors unspool and you turn into a lawn dart. And so you have to be very, very careful. In fact, before you'd fly, you'd do this math where in an Apache, about 200 pounds is an extra 1% of torque or 1% of power. And so you do that calculations and say, how many hundreds of pounds am I carrying that I could blow off if I needed to, to have a little extra power to either cushion or take off? And so what you would do a lot of times, if I was flying in the back seat, I'd have my front seat have his hand on the jettison switch and if it looked like we were going to get in trouble i wanted him to blow the stores and you he would blow off the rocket pods basically so you'd have just a little bit more uh power to to try and land or to try and make it over that wall or something so fortunately we didn't have to do that but every day in the summertime it was it was crazy wow i had no idea so did they eventually put better engines on there? Yeah, yeah they, that's, you know, the Rumsfeld famously said that you go to war with the army you have, not the army you want. And so you saw that in Iraq where, you know, guys were in thin skinned vehicles, were getting killed left and right by IEDs. And eventually the army caught up to that and, and fixed it and had MRAPs and things like that. In Afghanistan, it was much the same thing where it was certainly, it was a better helicopter. The longbow by far was a better helicopter. But Apaches in general were built um, or designed in the Cold War with that mission of in the Fulda Gap in Germany is where the Soviet armored hordes were going to come pouring through. And we couldn't match them tank for tank. And so we had the A-10 and the Apache that would be able to just loft rockets in and kill them. And so what the, the first Apache units, the 101st guys that were as part of Operation Anaconda, they figured out in real time they didn't have the power to sit and hover and shoot rockets because that's what you practiced all the time. You'd come to a hover, shoot the rockets, and, and it was actually you could use both the front seat and the back seat and shoot them long ways. Works really good if you can hover. If you can't hover, it's a completely different method. And so they literally had to give some of the older warrant officers were given classes over the radio, say, look, you got to do diving fire. This is how you do it. And we're learning on the fly how to, how to be able to do it. And so we went to Afghanistan in 2005. And so we had the benefit of seeing what they did. And so we structured all the simulator training to be like Afghanistan. When we flew, we loaded the helicopters down to try and be like how we would be there. And we were, we practiced diving fire all the time. And in fact, redid our gunnery tables so that we would do um, diving fire engagements. And so we came a lot better prepared than the first folks that went in, but there was still a learning curve, no doubt. Wow. 
That's crazy. Yeah. Um, the other thing I was kind of curious about is this, uh, I've, I don't, I feel like I watched some movie when I was a kid about this, about eye dominance issues in mm, the Apache. Yeah. Um, I cannot for the life of me. Oh, it's called movie. Firebirds. Is that it's, what it's, called? Uh, it's got Nicholas Cage in it. So the Navy got Top Gun and Tom Cruise and we got Nick Cage <laughs> and Firebirds. That's what happened right there. I, I do remember <laughs> enjoying the movie. It's just been so long. I was a kid when I saw it. Um, how much truth is there to that? So unfortunately a lot, um, that movie was actually shot at Fort hood. It was shot before I was there. And when I showed up, Fort hood was my second assignment out of flight school. I went to Korea first and then Fort hood. And they called it the movie that shall not be named. You weren't actually allowed to say the name of the movie because it was so terrible. But um, what happens, one of the things that makes the Apache is designed to be a killing machine and it's very, very good at its job. And so one of the ways um, that it's good at its job is you have, I'm going to use my hands again, you have what's called an HDU, a helmet display unit that rests over your right eye like this. And so what happens is there are little infrared sensors on your helmet and um, you climb into the helicopter and there's, they call it a bore sight, this little light, and you line up the um, HDU with that light and you key it. And what you're doing is telling the fire control computer where your eye is in relation to the helmet. And so you can then use that to um, the 30 millimeter gun underneath can follow your eye. You can shoot rockets. You can shoot a whole bunch of stuff with that. The other thing that you do that you're referencing is the Apache, at least originally you didn't fly with night vision goggles. What you did is flew with the thermal. Now, now in, in Afghanistan, we'd gotten to the point where we used both because on a um, on a low uh, light night, a low alum night, the thermal's actually better. But for the most part, goggles are better, and the guys on the ground are using goggles, and so you want to be able to see in their spectrum. Mm -hmm. But in order to be able to fly with that, what you had to get used to is using your right eye to see outside and your left eye to see inside, and so you're actually flipping back and forth before between eyes. And so the way they teach you to do it is called flying the bag where they take these high-tech garbage bags and tape it all over the back window of the cockpit. And so the instructor, it's literal garbage, literal bags. garbage bags, <laughs> high-tech, high-tech <laughs> solutions, black hefty garbage bags. And so it's daytime. So you don't kill yourself because the instructor pilot's sitting in the front seat and he can see. And so you're learning to try and fly just out of this eye. And so it's, it's terrible as you're doing it first. And and what's worse, the eye dominant um, problems come in. If you're left eye dominant, it takes a while to train yourself to use your right eye. And to make it worse, those high-tech garbage bags would have little pinholes in them where something had rubbed them. And so that usually manifests yourself as you're flying on approach and you're sweating like crazy because you're concentrating so hard and the black bags everywhere. And you're you know doing this as you're coming in to land. And a little shaft of sunlight will come through that pinhole and your left eye will take over like this. And so you're like, oh my gosh, and you're trying to close that left eye so you can see with your right eye. But once you get that down, I actually needed extra time to do it. Sometimes you, my first bag check ride, I failed and I had to get extra hours in order to do it um, because it's, it's so contrary to anything you've ever done. But once you get good at it, that sensor that you're flying with, if this is the Apache the sensors on the nose of it like this. And so what you can actually do is look through the floor of the helicopter because you're putting your head down, the sensors up here and it's looking down so you can see that way. And so my first, um, you know, combat mission I flew in Afghanistan was escorting a medevac and it's pitch black and we're not flying with formation lights. And that was another big thing because in this, in the States or in Germany where we are, you always had to fly with formation lights. And so you're getting used to flying 
without formation lights, and with the system, you had to constantly tune it because there's something that's called IR crossover. So at night, as temperatures change, what happens is grass cools down at a different rate than rocks do, than water does. And so what you have is a crossover where grass starts to look like rocks or a mountain starts to look like water. And so you would tune the sensor so to adjust for the, for the um, thermal differentiation. The problem is ours were old, old sensors. They have newer ones now that are much better. You could tune it to either see the helicopter or see the ground, and you couldn't do both usually. And so (laughs) you're tuning it and hoping that the guy or girl that's flying lead isn't going to fly you into the side of the mountain because you can't see the mountain. You're looking at the helicopter. And so we're coming into this fob in the middle of nowhere that's blacked out that I've never flown before, and the Blackhawks can haul ass. Like They're really fast. We're really slow because we're underpowered there's a guy who's in in trouble that's why they're doing the medevac and he's like i'm just gonna go and get him and i was too naive to say no there's a reason why i'm flying behind you and i'm like okay fine get him so he shoots the approach and everything first and i'm coming in and i'm looking i've never seen it under the daytime i'm looking under the system trying to figure out where the landing spot is that we're supposed to go and so my front seater was a really good stick we flew together a lot and he was flying goggles, and so he had a much better picture, and he was a good pilot, and he's like, I'll shoot the approach. And I'm like, fine, I'll just sit back here and take a nap. And so <laughs> as he's shooting the approach, a common thing, they say the hardest maneuver in a helicopter is to shoot um, the normal approach because what you're doing, if, if this is your intended point of touchdown, you have this 45-degree line that you're trying to stay on, and as the helicopter gets lower you got to add more power to stay on the line if you add too much you pull off of it and so as we're shooting the approach he got too steep and he lost the sight of the landing zone and so then you could do two things we could do a go around but i'm like man i don't know where i am i've already done this once i don't want to go out in the mountain and come back and find it again and so because i had the system on i'm essentially looking through the floor of the helicopter and I couldn't see the Blackhawk very well, but I knew he'd moved and I saw the two heat puddles from his engine where he'd just been. And I'm like, well, he was there. So I'm going to go with the notion that it's clear and shoot my approach to that. And so once you get used to it, it works really, really well. And in Apache, you sit one behind the other like this. And so the only way the front seater can see you, there's a little $5 mirror, a rear view mirror that he can, he or she can look up into and see you, but it's hard to pass targets back and forth. And so that's another thing you can do with the HDU is if I'm looking at something I want you to see, I can just put my eyeball on it and say gunner target. And what you get in your eye are cueing dots that tell you where to move your head. And then there's a little cross that comes into your line of sight that shows you what I'm looking at. And so it's really, really nifty once you figure it out, but it is a steep learning curve. And that's why the, I think the Blackhawk takes about six weeks or so to do the transition. The Apache, I think the alpha model took four or five months. It's the longest one. And it's mainly because of that, because it takes, it's so hard to learn how to fly that system when you're starting. So, I mean, it sounds like you'd much rather, I mean, the current one is much, much better. Yeah. It's not just a little better. It's, it's, it's substantially better. Yeah. Despite the weight issues. Yeah. So they're actually a model beyond that now. So what I I flew, I started what was called the alpha model and then we transitioned to what's called the longbow, the Delta model. And now they're at an echo model, the guardian. And so as part of, I think they did it with later longbows and then certainly with the guardians, they retrofitted all the sensors and did all. And so it's much, much better, better engines, better everything. And so what 
we had, the difference between the two airplanes is that an alpha model is very much kind of like the analog gauges and everything. The longbow is all flat screens. And so it's beautiful because you can each configure, you call it a page. Like if I want to look at an engine page and a nav page, my front seater can say, well, I want to look at a weapons page and something else. And so you configure your cockpit how you want it. And then what's also awesome is there's two different sensors. So the, there's a little one that looks like a ball that sits on the nose that usually the pilot uses. And there's a much bigger one's called the TADS, and it's called the Target Acquisition and Designation Sensor because in the Army, everything is complicated. <laughs> and, and so it's a much bigger sensor, and it's more powerful, and it's one that you use to shoot a laser with. And so you can take your MPD, your multipurpose display, and I can select his or her video to come up underneath of it. And so I get my instruments and then I can also see exactly what they're looking at. And so it was, and then each helicopter would have its own IP address. So you could data burst targets between them. And so it was amazing, but it was a little bit of a bear to fly in the summertime in Afghanistan. Oh, I bet. I know the F-35, I think, mm-hmm. <clears throat> has a very similar, I don't know if it works the same, but you can look through the cockpit, like everything's invisible, you know, yeah. like all the instruments disappear and now you're looking at yep. the, st- the sky effectively or, you know, thermal version of the sky. I always thought that was um, for the OODA loop um, mm-hmm. variants or whatever, you know, better visibility. I can look in any dimension, any direction, doesn't matter, and zoom in, zoom out, and now I can see whatever the plane yeah. could theoretically see if it was a big eye. Yeah, and my understanding with the F-35, too, a couple things. So instead of having this little thing sitting against your eye, it's got the visor. And then they also have a sensor fusion thing where they're taking, you know, radar, thermal, a whole bunch of things and presenting the best picture to the pilot. And so that's the biggest thing um, is you want the pilot focused outside. And what we saw with the longbow, honestly, when we were starting, is there's so many more buttons to push now that – guys and girls would have their heads down. And so there's something, the alpha model didn't really have um, an autopilot. The longbow had a hover hold that you could click on and it's and it's queued to the GPS and it does a pretty good job. But what you'd see is I'd click on the hover hold like in a gunnery or something and I'm getting something ready and the, the co-pilot gunner's down pushing buttons and I'm pushing buttons and you're like, who's flying the helicopter right now? <laughs> like Boeing is because neither of us are flying. And so it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword because, because pilots, especially gunship pilots are attracted to shiny objects. So if you give them more things to look at and more things to do, you got to still be careful that their heads aren't staying inside the cockpit. Interesting. So is hovering a difficult task? <sighs> it, it is. It doesn't um, seem like it would. I mean, knowing nothing about flying airplanes or yeah. or helicopters, it seems like hovering should be the easiest of all of those things. I might have to walk out of the scenario. <laughs> I know, but it just seems like intuitively, because I mean, you, you're not instructing it to go any dimension. You don't have to understand access. You're basically, it seems like if you took your hands off of everything, as long as you had the same amount of power, it would just stay put. But You are a child of summer. I that's know. that's what I'm saying right not, now. That is not. Um, that is so not what you have to understand, the difference between a helicopter and an airplane is an airplane likes you and a helicopter wants to kill you. And so a, kill, a helicopter, specifically when you're hovering, it does not want to hover. It is the... Um, yeah, why? I don't because what you have is a whole bunch of forces all acting in opposition to each other. So for instance, when you're hovering, what you have to figure out, and and the way you learn how to hover, you have what's called a stick buddy, which is in flight school, they divide all the students into pairs of two. And so one instructor pilot and two students. And so what happens is when you go to fly, you fly and your stick buddy sits in the back seat and you go and fly out to some field and he or she jumps out and you fly and then you come back and they fly. 
and it's a ton of fun for the hovering when you're sitting there watching your buddy trying to hover and they're sliding all over the field and trying to kill it themselves until you get in. Because <laughs> what you have to figure out in, in a helicopter, there are three different control inputs that you're making all the time. So with your feet, you're controlling the yaw rate as the nose goes back and forth like this. With your left hands, the collective, you're controlling the helicopter going up and down. And with the cyclic, your right hand, you're controlling how the helicopter slides back and forth. So what you have to be able to do is look at the world and see how it's moving and realize which combinations of that. Is it sliding? Is it turning? Is it going up and down? And so that's what's really hard about it. And in fact, what happens is your instructor pilot will pass you one set of controls at a time and say, hey, I just want you to try and keep the nose straight. You work the pedals, I got everything else. And so you kind of see what that does, and then he'll take that back, and she'll pass you the collective and say, just stay at the same altitude. And you're going up and down and up and down. And then the same thing with the cyclic and as you're doing it. And so what happens is there comes a point where you're not really hovering because when you do it right, when people are good, you see they just make kind of minute adjustments. What you do when you're student is called stirring the pot. And what you're doing <laughs> is putting in so many different adjustments that the helicopter can't figure out what to do. And it just kind of stares there. And so there's a moment when you finally master a hover and that day your instructor pilot gives you your hover card and it has this little aviator who's walking, chewing gum and swinging a yo-yo or something at the same time. And it's a huge, huge um, rite of passage to finally be able to hover. It gets harder in the field in Afghanistan specifically because the way that you hover is you have to be able to see the world because you're making adjustments to visual. Well, in Afghanistan, a lot of times you get into what's called brownout, whereas you're hovering the downdraft from the rotor is kicking up dirt and dust, and so you lose all visual horizon or you lose anything. And so that's when that hover hold can save your life because you click it on and then take your hands off the controls, and the helicopter comes to a rock-solid hover, and then as the dirt kind of assuages and stuff, you can do it. The other thing that made it harder for Apaches is we were very power-limited, and so a Blackhawk could come in and come to a high hover and slowly come down. We didn't have the power to do that. And so you're committed. And so if you brown out as you're coming in, you're basically transitioning to an instrument landing, which means you're just piling it on the ground. And it it was even worse taken off. There was a place called Bamian that was about 7,000 feet MSL. And so it was, you think, Mile High Stadium is 5,000 feet. This was another 2,000 feet above that. And so we're really, really power limited. And so it's this dirt runway in the, the Chinook, He's got power for miles, and so he just takes straight off and goes, I can't even pick up to a two-foot hover, let alone a (laughs) three-foot. And so what you do is you go rolling down this runway, and you tell your front seater, and like, hey, if I vary more than two degrees in heading, call it out. You know, be ready to punch the stores off if I'm going in. And you, you divide up between the two of you the workload. And as you're taking off and just when you start to climb out, you completely brown out. And so you're literally holding that. And, and it's the longest 15 seconds of your life because you can't see anything. You can't you don't have any visual references. You're basically flying off instruments until you can fly out of that brown cloud. And it's it's terrifying. Wow, that is crazy. I remember reading somewhere <clears throat> the difference uh, between a Cobra and an a Apache. Mm-hmm. One of the major upsides was that it has wheels. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, not a minor upside. It's it's really nice because you can taxi around yeah. and you can actually get some speed on the ground. And yeah. yeah, you can do what's... So, first of all, 
the difference between an Apache and a, and a uh, Cobra is kind of like the difference between a scooter and a Mustang. Like one of them is a fun <laughs> thing to show mom and dad, but then another one is a war fighting machine. And so one of the things that you can do because you have wheels is called a max performance takeoff. And that's what I was talking about, where if you don't have enough power to pick up to a hover because you have wheels, you can roll down the runway or the dirt strip until you hit that about 20 knots and it lets you fly out. Um, the same thing when you land, uh, we used to say skids were for kids. And so I don't know if the Marines <laughs> like that or not. What I do know is that the seals were very, very happy when the Apaches came in and the, and the Cobras left. But the, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I say that tongue in cheek. We, when we were in Afghanistan, the unit before us were, um, Marine Cobra pilots. And so we replaced them. The difference, all kidding aside, the difference is that, that um, Cobra is the only aircraft in the Army's inventory, maybe in the military's inventory, that's gone through every single letter of the alphabet. And so it started as an Alpha Model Cobra back in Vietnam. It is now a Zulu Model Cobra, however many years later. And so what that means, that airframe is very, very tiny. And so what they've had to do is like bolt on things to it. And so literally when you try and climb in that stuff, because I did it with the Marines, Ours, especially the longbow, is all, it looks like a Star Wars cockpit or something. It's beautiful. It's ergonomic. You got space. When you try and get in that Cobra, they got like this box bolted to the cockpit over here and this other squirrely thing over here. And it's just, it's because that airframe has been around for so long that they've had to try and um, upgrade it. And the other thing, one of the best parts about being an Apache is that 30 millimeter gun that hangs underneath of you. And so when it goes off, it's like your chest just... It's the best feeling in the world. And you just look at stuff and squeeze the trigger and it goes away. The, the Cobra has a Cannon two or a, a machine gun or Gatlin gun, but it doesn't shoot those big 30 millimeter rounds. The Apache shoots the same round as the A-10 does. Now, ours are a lot smaller. Theirs are about this long, so there's a lot more power behind it. But it's a great size round and it just tears up, you know, equipment, things like that. So it's really good. <clears throat> Excuse me. So I have to ask this question because it's always been a really curious thing, but I'm going to ask it. Uh, tell me from your perspective after, after I tell you this story. Yeah. So um, a guy I know worked in a position where he was doing sort of construction and, mm -hmm. and surveying work or whatever. And he was out in the middle of some field somewhere and some Apache helicopters flying by. He's like, huh, I wonder how far away that is. I actually have no idea. So he lazed it. And it's a, not a visible laser, Yeah, but he lazed it, um, and it stopped dead in its tracks, turned, and came right over him and was hovering with a gun <laughs> pointing at him. And he's like, uh, <laughs> you know, kind of doing one of these, uh, you know, please don't kill me. Um, <clears throat> it didn't, obviously, and left, and no big deal. What would that have been like had you been in the pilot seat or whatever? What what would have gone off? What would have, what would have been your... Yeah, so it depends. Was this in Afghanistan or something? No, this was in the United States. This oh, okay. Is, this is just some random... We can't be too too sure. I mean, <laughs> you need to check out any potential threat. So it depends on the frequency of the laser and stuff. The Apache has what's called a um, ACE, Aircraft Survivability Equipment. And so what you have is one of those screens you can pull up basically shows you threats that can be... Um, threat lasers, it can be threat um, radar detectors, things like that. And it could potentially come up if it was the right frequency and mimic something like that. What happened um, in Afghanistan that was pretty terrifying uh, along those same lines is um, 
in Afghanistan, we were terrified about the surface-to-air missile threat. So everybody thought there were all, if you remember back in the 80s, late 80s, we were funding the Mujahideen, and we gave them a whole bunch of stingers. stingers yeah. So everybody was convinced um, there were stingers out there. In fact, the Afghans, it was kind of a thing of prestige to say that you had a stinger or and they would call anything that that looked like that a stinger and so maybe it was a stinger maybe it was an sa7 maybe it was something else but stinger was kind of the generic term for it and so um in iraq a lot of helicopters were shot down by surface air missiles and to the point where at at one point during the war um they quit letting chinooks fly during the daytime because they were such big targets and they were just getting thrashed by surface air missiles the little man pad shoulder fired missiles so before we went to afghanistan they upgraded the blackhawks and chinooks where um before we had um a bucket and you could put chaff in there that you would blow out if it was a radar guided missile or you could turn it upside down and put flares in there that it would shoot out if it was a um a man pad and that works well in theory or it works if you're an air force plane at twenty thousand feet and you have time if you get shot at by an rpg or or a man pad it happens so fast it's either going to hit you or miss you and there's very little you're going to be able to do about it and you're not going to be able to react in time to kick off flares or something and so they came up with this great invention where they had a sensor that would look across the thermal spectrum and what it was supposed to see is like the flare from a launch of a missile and it would kick out the flares automatically. And and they're even more advanced now. I think they might even be able to, they look like a Doppler radar or something to be able to try and see the projectile. And so um, the unit before us had been flying those and had the Chinooks and Blackhawks outfitted with them. Well, the Afghan kids figured out that if you took a mirror and you hit that sensor just right, it would kick out flares, and they thought that was great fun because the helicopter would buy and they do it. So somehow that little bit of intel did not get passed to us. In my first or second mission, <laughs> I'm escorting a Blackhawk, and I just see these flares kick out the side, and I look left, and I think what are muzzle flashes. I can see these things. And so I literally was the rockets. I activated the rockets, banked it over, and was getting ready to, to kick off a salvo of rockets, when my front seater's like, stop, 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 they're kids, they're kids, they're kids. And it was literally a school and a bunch of kids flashing the mirrors and stuff. But it was that kind of thing where you, they did a good job, I think, of of wow. getting you ready to go there, but also making sure you understand that when you pulled the trigger, you can't ever get that shot back. And so you were, most of the time, in 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 our rules of engagement were different than the special operations folks or the the tier one units that had much more permissive ones. And so there were many more, many times in Afghanistan where I remember popping over a hillside and seeing a bunch of guys on the ground with AK 47s and they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and I'm like, are they bad guys? Are they just, everybody in Afghanistan has an AK 47. What we used the kind of part of our rules of engagement is if they have an RPG, they're a bad guy. If they have an AK-47, maybe they're a bad guy. And so we did a lot more of trying to get people to shoot at us so that we would know they were bad guys versus shooting first and potentially, you know, in that case, it would have been tragic shooting at a, a bunch of kids who were, you know, flashing the mirror. But you're constantly trying to figure out, are they bad guys? Are they just normal people walking around with it? And and the Taliban's smart, right? There's There is a um, perception, I think, that we were fighting cavemen. And maybe from a technology perspective, that's true. 
but they also had, you know, 20 or 30 years worth of light infantry training to become very, very good at what they did. In fact, when you would fly, before we went to Afghanistan, our squadron commander was really good about trying to prepare us from a history perspective. What happened to the Russians? There's a book called The Bear Went Over the Mountain where it talks about, you know, we had to read all of these books. And when you're flying in Afghanistan, no kidding, you'd see burned out BMPs or burned out BTRs that were the same place that they ambushed the Russians that they're, you know, waiting for the Americans and probably the same place they ambushed the British however many years ago. And so it was, it was very much where, and, and so part of that is they would know what our rules of engagement were. They would know how to use those against us. They would know when, when I was there, um, they came down to the change of rules of engagement where they didn't want you to go do a raid on a compound unless you let Karzai know before, and then he could let the mayor of that place know before. And one of the SEAL teams, and so what happened is the SEAL teams or the special operations folks would hit these compounds and nobody would be there. Well, surprise, surprise, when you tell the bad guys that you're coming or you tell enough Afghans where to get to it. And so there's a SEAL team we supported, SEAL Team 10, where they said, you know, we're just going to go hit the compound. We know it's right outside of Bagram. We know it's a bomb maker. My best friend was the troop commander. He supported that mission. They went right outside the compound, grabbed the guy, bomb maker, stuff everywhere, not not even under um, consideration. They did not, however, inform anybody that they were going to go get this guy. The people protested in front of Bagram, and the chain of command buckled, and we turned that guy loose. And so what we got, the aviators got, is the SEALs took his AK-47, mounted it to a plaque, and gave it to our squadron and said, at least we got to keep his gun. And that was, (laughs) I mean, and that was Afghanistan, right, is your, you know, your... I think, and that's that's part of that, what what comes in into my book, I think, is just this frustration, this quagmire that happened, you know, for 20 years of war and say, can anybody articulate to me what the tactical goals are right now? Can anybody articulate to me what winning looks like right now? Or are we just, you know, in a place of entropy where we've rotated people here over and over again and we continue to do that? And that was, you know, for me, my son was born shortly after September 11th, um, he is pursuing a, a career in the military. He's going to be commissioned as a Marine Corps officer um, once he graduates from college, and I'm very, very proud of that. But as a father, I just felt, you know, abho- you know, felt it that abhorrent that a generation of kids later might have to go back to Afghanistan, and, and we didn't even know why. And so I think a lot. I don't want to say most veterans, but most folks I talked to agreed with that, and were ready for us to be done with Afghanistan. But the way in which we were done is what, you know, called everything under question and said, you know, it can't it can't end this way. The the sacrifices we made, the people we lost, the blood and treasure we we poured in this place. This can't be how it ends. And that was how it ended. Yeah. So um, if you wouldn't mind, I'd really like to talk about uh, Operation Red Wings. Yeah. uh, I know that you um, were flying in that in that arena. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah. So what happened? Um, Operation Red Wings was originally planned to be a um, a operation for the Marines, and so, like I said, we supported a Marine battalion that was down in Jalalabad, and the Marines um, didn't have their own organic air, and so what they would do is sometimes they'd come to us, sometimes um, they they would, and so. They would, they would try and get the air to be able to do um, the air assault and stuff that Red Wings required. Well, the SEAL teams are um, a different customer and a different tier customer. And so when they 
request aviation, they can get it most of the time. And we ended up working quite a bit with them, the SEAL teams there uh, because of that. In fact, every, every special operations team um, or most everyone that would rotate into country, we would take them across the river there at Bagram and shoot with them. So they would get used to calling Apaches in. And, you know, small world, one of the times I'm shooting, it's just the range, but I'm shooting for this um, ODA, this operate, this Green Beret team. And the, and the voice on the radio sounds familiar. And I'm like, I know that guy from somewhere. And all of a sudden he said, Don, is that you? And it was, no kidding, a guy that I went to ROTC with that oh. was now the captain on the ground of that um, Special Forces A team. And I'm shooting rockets over his head. And so, um, don't miss, don't miss, don't miss. <laughs> yeah. There's actually, I'll deviate a little bit from that. So when, when, when we would do that, we'd give them a card and say, here's how you call for a close combat, um, air attack CCAs. Um, but really what I need to know is where they are and where you are. And so don't make it super complicated. Tell me where you are. Tell me where the target is. And if you can designate the target, that's better. And there's all kinds of ways they can designate at night. They can use lasers. They can use their 50 cals. And so it's in the daytime and we're shooting for them. And so they start off shooting with their 50 cal. And you can see really easy where the rounds are impacted. And so we're putting rockets and 30 on it. And then they, they're moving it in closer and moving it in closer. At one point, they're using kind of their small arms to designate and it's a little harder but i can see where the dirt's kicking up and so my front seater at the time is a different front seater from my red wings he's like sir i don't know if we should shoot it that's awful close i'm like by god they called us in we're gonna shoot it give me the gun and so i took the gun did a gun run and um and i noticed that guys were diving under their humvees and stuff as i'm doing the gun and so as i'm pulling <laughs> off my friend doug gets on the radio and he's like i didn't think you'd really shoot that close and i'm like if you didn't want me to shoot don't call me in and so that was the kind of stuff that you get used to because the first time you ever do we would call it a bump and so what would happen is if the bad guys are here what you would do is you'd fly parallel to the target You'd bump up, turn over, shoot rockets, shoot rockets. And then as you'd break, the front seater would cover the brake with the 30 millimeter. And when you get really good at it, one gun is breaking just as the other gun's rolling in. And so they're constantly putting fire on target. Well, the first time you do a bump and you see the good guys and the target in your windscreen at the same time, that's, that's kind of a defining moment. And you're like, yeah. this isn't training anymore. This is for real. If I don't do this right, you know, God forbid I could, you know, hit Americans or something. And so for Red Wings, what happened is that the SEALs were, said, okay, we'll, we will um, get you aviation, but we want to be part of it too. And so I was at the, in Afghanistan, you have um, three different mission sets as an Apache person. You have the quick reactionary force, which you normally did for 10 or 12 days. And it would be, you know, a day shift where it might be four in the morning till four in the afternoon. And then you'd usually have 24, 48 hours off and you'd rotate and then you'd take the night shift. And so you would, you would be the 911 force um, for, for Bagram. And so what happened if you'd carry a little walkie talkie and if you got a call on that radio, you'd have to be airborne um, within 30 minutes and it could be anything. It could be, there's just a general who wants to fly to Kabul and he needs an Apache escort. It could be that there's a, um, uh, Blackhawk or Chinook that needs to go make a run, or maybe they need to do a medevac thing, or there's what we call the tick, a troops in contact, it could be anything. And so you would do that. The second kind of mission type is what's called a ring route, where the Blackhawks and Chinooks would take supplies from fob to fob, and you would fly escort for them. And so those were usually kind of boring, but they'd be a lot of flight hours. It'd be seven or eight hours just flying from point to point, and you're protecting 
we used to call it, you know, trolling with a Chinook or trolling with a Blackhawk because you'd throw that line out and you'd let that helicopter fly um, straight and level. And then you'd be kind of the hound dog going from either side, checking out the cliffs, trying to see if anybody's going to shoot at them because you wanted them in front of you so that if they drew fire, you could turn around and roll in on that versus if you flew first, the Taliban would let you fly by and then engage the Chinook. And then the third kind of operation, which is what Red Wings ended up being, was a deliberate or direct action one. So that's where you plan, hey, we're going to go hit a compound, we're going to do whatever, and the Apaches are going to do the close combat support for it. So the escort clear the landing zone, and then once the guys on the ground are kicking indoors and doing their thing, the Apaches are flying support for them. So I was, for the Red Wings, I just happened to be on QRF um, for that day. So I wasn't part of the planning. I remember the mission getting brief, but I knew I wasn't up to do the direct action or anything like that. And so um, what happened is that um, when the, so the 160th were the guy, were the folks, the, the special operations army aviation were the ones that put the seals in. And what we were saying before, I can't remember if this was on the tape or not, is that traditionally the 160th and general aviation, like what I was, we didn't work together very often. And so the 160th obviously has a different mission set than um, general aviation. They traditionally have their own fire support assets. So they have either the little birds, the little Magnum PI helicopters that have rockets and miniguns on it. They have the DAPs, the dual action penetrators. But in Afghanistan, the where we were operating, it was too high for the little birds to be able to fly there. And most of the 160th DAPs, I think, were in Iraq at the time, supporting customers there. And so what would happen is we would get... Um, the SEALs would ask for Apache support, and so we would often get pulled into um, 160th missions where you'd go down to the compound, you'd kind of brief them. But everything that they – it wasn't – so the the other organic air assets in our um, task force, the, the Chinooks, the Blackhawks, we had trained with them for months before deploying because we all came from Germany together. We did joint missions together. So we knew how they worked. We were very familiar with them. The 160th were different, and they, they have a different mission set. And so it it was probably a little more of a learning curve working with them and, frankly, them working with us than it was our, our organic assets. And so I knew that um, Red Wings was going on kind of peripherally. It wasn't going to be my mission. I was just doing um, QRF that day. And so the night before the 160th um, put that four-man SEAL team in that had uh, Mike Murphy, Lieutenant Mike Murphy was the commander, and then Marcus Luttrell and Danny Dietz and um, Matt, missing the fourth guy's name. So they put them in as as a kind of a scout sniper team. And so when I came on QRF duty that morning, you know, whatever time it was, usually what happens is if it was 4 a.m., you'd go down, pre-flight the helicopter, run it up, make sure there's no problems, pre-flight the backup, you know, make sure that you had an aircraft to bump to, and then you would come up to the talk or the tactical operations center, and they'd give you kind of a briefing of what the day looked like. Here are the missions we know about. Here are the things we think might happen. Here's current intelligence, weather, all that stuff. So I remember at the briefing them saying something to the effect of, hey, there was a SEAL team that was put in last night, we've lost comms with them, you know, it it might turn into something, kind of be ready for it. Now, there isn't, you know, a whole lot you can do to be ready for it. Um, And so I went about my day, and at some some point that morning, I can't remember when it was, um, my radio went off. And so what happens when your radio goes off, and the guy I flew with was an amazing front seater. Like I said, we were crewed together quite a bit. 
he was another captain and that didn't happen a lot. It's usually what we call a commissioned officer, which is, you know, oh one through oh whatever, and then a warrant officer are crewed together or two warrants are. Um, I was fortunate enough that I made pilot command and so I could fly with another because commissioned officers, at least back then, weren't often pilot in command. So it was normally warrant officers. So the two of us had flown together a lot. He was the one I was talking about before that um, our first mission where he lost sight of the landing zone and I had to use the system to shoot it. And so we had kind of a routine down where he would run for the for the talk to get an update and I would run for the helicopter to run it up. And so you usually have a pair of Apaches that are on QRF duty. So the other crew was um, Mark uh, Rudy, who was a maintenance test pilot, and then um, Dan Bryce, who was my XO. So I was a commander. Dan was my XO. And they were their wingman. And so Mark and I went to go run up the helicopters. I don't know if Dan went with Mark or he went to the talk or not. But Alex, who was my front seater, came running back. And he's like, it's the SEAL mission. And he's like, we've got a grid coordinate, a call sign, and a frequency. And that's all we had. And so we were in Bagram. And what our mission was, was to fly down to Jalalabad, where the Marines were. And there were a couple Blackhawks that were loading up with Marines as a quick reactionary force. We'd link up with the Blackhawks and then fly all of them up to um, that grid coordinate that we had. That was the last known point of contact for the SEALs. And so we got up and took off um, flying for Jalalabad. And I remember at the time thinking, you know, that it was um, fantastic. It was kind of like your dad finally gave you the keys to the car. Like, this is what you trained for your entire life. This is what you are supposed to do as an Apache pilot is go save the good guys and put steel on target. And so as we're landing in Jalalabad, I remember seeing a Chinook take off, and I knew it was a 160th Chinook because they're the only ones that have the refueling probes on the front. So they have the big, long refueling probe on the front of the helicopter. And so I came in to land, and I think it was two other Blackhawks, and I remember looking up and thinking, I wonder where that guy's going, and then went and, and made contact with the Blackhawks that were already there. I gave an air mission brief. There's What you have is... Um, you try and, and take as much um, workload off you as possible because combat is really um, stressful and it's complex and things are training. So we had a whole, just like the, the close combat attacks I talked to you about before, we, would ha- we had a kneeboard page that we would give people and say, this is the format you're going to follow, and you'd have that in the aircraft so you'd know what to expect. The same thing, we had a template for an ad hoc air mission brief that you could just give on the fly. And so I remember opening my kneeboard, giving the air mission brief, and we took off, and we, we flew the way that we normally flew where the, the um, Blackhawks were in the lead. We were behind them. And the landing zone, um, the proposed landing zone, or the last known grid coordinate, was really high. It was up on this mountain, and so as we're coming up onto that mountain, weather's starting to come down a little bit. There's a um, little bit of kind of fog and stuff coming in. It's really, really high. And I had, and we were power limited. And so I had to call the Blackhawks a couple times. I'm like, you got to slow down because you're going to overrun me. You got to slow down. And so as we're coming up the side of the mountain, I see two Chinooks coming in and joining our formation. And it was... Um, one of them was the Chinook I saw take off of Jalalabad. And I can't remember how we figured out who they were because the 160th has slightly different fills too sometimes than we do. So the way a radio works, the way they make it secure is that every day you load what's called the fill into it. And it's like a cipher basically. And it changes every day and you have to sync it. Well, if two radios don't have the same cipher, even if you're on the same frequency, 
you can't talk or sometimes there's some bleed over between it. And so we could kind of talk to them, but not really. And there was an A-10 that was flying overhead that was doing kind of command and control. And he could look down because we're coming up these valleys trying to get to the mountain. And so he can see both the landing site that we're at as well as the helicopters. And so as we're somehow, I don't remember how we figured out who they were and that they had the SEAL quick reactionary force with them as well. And so there was two Chinooks out ahead of us, the two Blackhawks, and then me and my wingman that are coming up. And so as we're getting closer, I remember um, call either I did or my front seater, I can't remember which of us made the radio call and said, hey, um, I can't remember if we did it directly to the Chinook or the A-10 um, related to them, but it said, you got to tell those guys to slow down because they're going to beat us to the landing zone. You have to tell them to slow down. And so the SOP would be that um, at what's called the release point, the the aircraft you were escorting would slow down, the Apaches would come forward, and then you would clear the landing zone. And so you're looking, are there bad guys there or not? You're flying around. You're trying to get them to shoot at you. And so the you would drop flares on the landing zone or something to try and see if there are bad guys there. And so what you would do is call the landing zone cherry or ice. And so if it was cherry, you know, you'd wave the helicopters off. If it's ice. That's a cold landing zone. The helicopters could come in. And then as soon as the helicopters took off, you would transition to the role of doing close combat attacks for the guys on the ground. And so the Blackhawks or Chinooks would take off and then you're being a gunship pilot. And so I remember saying to him, like, you got to slow down. We're not going to be able to get to the landing zone before you did. And then they came back and said, you know, negative, you can clear the landing zone. Once you get there, we're going. And then the very next radio call, I remember. Um, How far ahead were they at this point? Um, I think far enough ahead from where I was flying that I couldn't see them at this point. Wow. Um, and so because the next radio call came from the black, either the black Hawk that was at the front of the formation or the a 10 overhead. And he said, so the Chinook, the one sixtieth version is called an MH 47 instead of a CH. And he said, the MH is down, the MH is down, the MH is down. And so they called that right as I was flying a beam, the black Hawks to pass them. And so the landing zone was kind of over here as we're coming up. Um, that Chinook gets shot down. And so the Blackhawk flight turns into us and it was grace of God that there wasn't just a midair collision right there. And so I, you know, banked the helicopter over as far as I could go and ended up going. And so the mountains like this, and there were a couple different valleys that kind of led up to it. And I went down one valley, the Blackhawks pulled off another one and I completely lost my wingman. And I remember thinking, you know, I could hear the radio traffic and hear them saying, you know, the MH is down. And I just remember thinking in my head, I'm like, this is Black Hawk down right now. Like, this isn't yeah. supposed to happen. Like, how in the world is this Chinook gone? Like, what's happening? And and I remember in the first minute or two, I, all it was all I could do to, was to fly the helicopter because I had almost hit a, a Black Hawk. I was afraid I was going to hit the terrain. And so in that moment, all you're thinking about is kind of survival and then my front seater's like, we got to get in there. And I'm like, by God, he's right. We do have to get in there. That's our job. But I wanted to link up with my wingman, and I couldn't find him because we'd gone down separate valleys. And so the, the A-10, again, had to link me back up with my wingman where he's literally like, turn, stop, turn, stop, turn, all right, go. And so we're coming in to try and find this helicopter 
and he's like, and the A-10 was trying to give us directions and stuff, and I was like, this can't be right, because there's nothing that looks like a helicopter. It was just waves and waves of fire everywhere on the side of the mountain. And I found out, you f- we found out later what happened is the Chinook came to a hover to let the SEALs fast rope out. It got hit by an RPG, and it kind of did this, and then hit the side of the mountain and tumbled down. But all I could see was just fire everywhere, and I'm like, this can't be the, the right spot. Like, this can't, there's nothing here that even looks like a helicopter. And so the A-10 at the time was trying to, so I'm sorry, right before that, I couldn't, oh, sorry, I'm telling this a little out of story. So after the, the Chinook was shot down, the A-10 rolled in and started firing white phosphorus rockets because what he was trying to do was to keep the Taliban from overrunning the crash site by, you know, from my perspective, all I could see was things blowing up all over the place, and all I could see was fire everywhere. And I'm like, I don't know what the crash site is. All I can see is everything burning. And so I was convinced that we weren't even at the crash site, that he had he had shot something, and what we saw burning were where the rockets were. And so he was trying to use his laser to guide us to where it is. And, and we couldn't see it. It wasn't in the visible spectrum, but you can do this thing where you – dial up the laser code, and then you can get the sensor to slave to it. So you still can't see the sensor, but it's like a kind of like a dog that points at birds. It goes, chunk. and so you can see where it is. And I'm like, you know, we couldn't get the laser to or we couldn't either catch his laser or where he was pointing. I'm like, it can't be that. And so then he actually went into verbal commands and he's like, all right, start a right turn, stop turn, hold. And so he vectored us over the crash site. And I'm like, all I could see was fire everywhere. All I could see. And so we didn't have at the time the longbows didn't have um satcoms and so we couldn't call back to our headquarters or see what's going on or anything we could talk to him and he could kind of talk to him and i'm like you know we're apaches by god this is what we do we're gonna fly over if this is the crash site let's see if we can find anybody we and so what we ended up doing it was it was that the mountain was so high by the time we you climbed up to it you're barely doing 60 or 70 knots now a helicopter is hard to shoot down with an rpg if it's moving because if a helicopter is doing you know 100 knots and you're perpendicular to it you have to lead that helicopter with the rpg so unless it's coming straight for you or it's at a hover it's much harder to hit but we were going slow slow by the time that we got up there that I told the our wingman Mark Mark Rudy, who was you know a a courageous guy, I was like, you got to fly low and see if you can draw fire. And if you if I see something, I'll roll in on them from above you. And so he's literally flying over the crash site and doing this, going sideways, trying to see something. And I'm trying to figure out if I can see any flashes, if I can see any survivors, if I can see anything. And at one point, I was looking over to my right, and as we came up over the hill. A guy popped up and shot an RPG at, at us. And so my front seater, Alex, played um, lacrosse. He was a college lacrosse player. And he said later, he's like, it was half a lacrosse field away. He was 50. And at that distance, like, it was grace of God he didn't. I don't know how he missed us. And so it was, in my head, you talked about OODA loop before. I'm still trying to process, like, what is going on? What, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm on... I'm back on my heels. Like I just got hit by Mike Tyson. I'm trying to figure it out. And so when they shot the RPG, Alec had the the gun shaved slave to his eye. And so he looked and tried to squeeze the trigger, but there's something that happens where when the gun tilts too far, there's a software limit. So it won't shoot, you know, the helicopter itself. And so it couldn't shoot. But what he said was, we're taking fire. And as, as, 
goofy as it sounds, like that is what completely broke my log jam because when we practiced it over and over and over again in the simulator, that's the command you would give is we're taking fire and then you execute the battle drill. And so as soon as he said, we're taking fire in my head, I was like, okay, I know this, this feels familiar now. And you, and you make that, that transition from I'm terrified and I don't know what's going on to you're angry and how dare they shoot at us and we're going to light up this entire hillside. And so then as we started to come around and I, I had kind of when it rains, it pours. So there's something that's called an intercom cable, an ICS cable that goes to your helmet and it plugs in. And so it gets a lot of wear and tear. And so sometimes you'll get little shorts in it. Well, I had had shorts in it off and on, and, and, it, and it happens quite a bit. And I was like, I should take it in and get looked at. And I'm like, ah, next flight, next flight. Well, you know, Murphy's Law, that thing started going out, and I couldn't talk to Alec anymore. And so you can't, you can't there's a blast shield bef- between you, so you can't talk. And so at times, to get his attention, I was flying with one hand, and then I'd pound on the blast shield with my head, and he'd look up, and I'd be like, we're going to shoot him, we're going to do And so... You know, all of this crazy stuff happens, but once we get shot at, then you're like, oh, no, they didn't. No, they didn't just shoot at us. And so then I went, I was like, I was the rockets. I'm like, we're just going to put rockets down on the side of this hill. And so as I started to come in, Alex, to his credits, like, you can't just shoot. You can't just shoot. We don't know where the survivors are. There might be, you know, the original seals might be there. And, and so you go from this thing of like being scared out of your mind to then hyper aggressive where you just want to, rain down hellfire on everybody and and that was the right call and a good call by him and i was like okay what we're gonna do is just fly back and forth until we run out of gas and see if we can get somebody to shoot at us that the a10 can see to see if we can get some survivors to see if we can find anybody because the taliban were super smart they didn't want to mess with apaches and you could see later the taliban you know released some pretty horrific video on youtube and stuff like that and you can actually see us and you can see them shooting at us and then them like wrapping their arms around trees and stuff like that because we can't at at that point the sensors were really good at picking up a russian tank but not very good at picking up a human body from close and so you're doing it by eye as you're flying by over this mountain trying to find bad guys and stuff and so we just crisscross that that field over and over again. And at one point, um, Dan, who was in the front seat of Mark's um, helicopter, he's like, I got a guy, I got a guy. And I'm like, is it a, is it a seal? Is it? And he's like, I don't know. He just put up his hands when I went by. And, and so they were super smart about that stuff too, right? Like if they get caught in the open, they know you see a dude could be a goat herder. He could be the Taliban guy. And that's why aviation or attack aviation is very effective in conjunction with people on the ground for this mission but with it's kind of like a little bit like what you see in ukraine right now where the russian armor is getting slaughtered because they don't have infantry that's there to protect them as they're doing it we fight best in a combined arms format and so without a guy on the ground to say that's a bad guy or i know there are bad guys on this part of the hill just put rockets there because if we had that we would shoot all the time for them because they're the ones who have the situational awareness and can do it. But I was really, really hesitant to shoot at all if I couldn't positively ID the target or, or God forbid, there's a survivor and we kill them instead. And so we literally flew over that mountain until we ran out of gas. And as we're coming back, uh, we, we came down to a Sadabad that was a little um, tiny fob and the A-10s changed station 
And so we got gas, and I said, all right, we're going back. And so the A-10 radioed me, and he said, hey, I talked to your commander or your command back home. They want you guys to come back. You know, the mountain's weathered in. And I'm like, no, 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 we have to. We're the only ones who saw that place because the A-10 had already changed station by then. And there's we were cavalry officers, and one of the first fundamentals of the cavalry is to find and maintain, maintain contact with the enemy. Like, we knew what it looked like. We didn't like, no, 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 no. You guys have to come home. That's it. It's weathered in. Um, you can't go back there. And so it was one of the worst days of my life because not only was I didn't do my job and stop that Chinook getting shot down, I didn't fire a single shot. And now if anybody was there or still was alive, they just watched us leave them. And when Marcus Luttrell wrote his book, Lone Survivor, you know, I was paging, paging, paging through to find it. And there's a section in there where he said he watched the Apaches fall, fly away. And it just broke me. And I'm like, that guy was still alive. And we left him on the side of that hill. And, and, and it was terrible. And I had to, you know, spent a good part of my life after that figuring out, hey, this is not, not to equate combat with sports, but the, the best, the, the closest analogy I can find is you know, if you're a professional football player and you spend your entire life trying to get to the Super Bowl and you walk on the field and you fumble in the first play and that's it, and that's all you get. And that's what it felt like to me is that we, we didn't do our job, we didn't kill any bad guys, and until they had that tragic extortion Chinook shoot down later, the most SEALs in the history of the SEALs were killed on that day, and it happened in my watch, and I couldn't stop it. And so it was is a horrible thing to try and deal with for sure. Jesus. Have you talked to Marcus Luttrell? I mean, I think he is in Austin or around. Yeah, he's in Texas. I saw him a little bit on his book tour briefly when he came to, um, when he came to Cincinnati. What helped more is that um, when I got out of the army, I went to work for a company in Cincinnati and we had a a really big, um, Veterans Affinity Group, where we would bring in folks. And so there was a local author who wrote a book called Seal of Honor that was just about Mike Murphy and was his story. And he got his parents' permission to write it. And so when I saw this book, which was, I don't know, 2010 or something, I said, we got to bring this guy in and we got to bring in Mike's family. And so we were able to do that. And Mike's dad, Dan Murphy, uh, was a Vietnam infantryman, Purple Heart, actually got in a firefight on the side of a mountain. And and, and so they came in, and um, it was my job to introduce them. And I'm trying to introduce them, and you know, I can't even make it through it. And he just came up and hugged me, and he's like, it's not your fault. And um, it wasn't anything that anybody else hadn't said, but coming from him, it was completely different. And it was, you know, he had, it wasn't just a dad that was hurting. It was a guy who had been an infantry platoon leader who had a purple heart, who knew that sometimes things just don't go the way you want them to. And, and people don't come home and that's part of the deal. And so he was very, very gracious. The whole family was very, very gracious. They invited um, my wife and I to, come up to Bath, Maine when they did the christening for um, the ship that was uh, named in his honor and stuff. And so we got to do that with him. And I stayed in contact with uh, Mike's Mike, Mike's mom, um, for my wife did too, for a while. And um, they're, they're just incredible people. And it's, uh, 
it's an incredible story, but it, it was, it was brutal because when I left the, when you're in the military, you don't realize how much of your sense of purpose and who you are is tied up in what you do until you leave that and you don't have it anymore. And then the second thing you don't have is the community of people who understand what you're going through and what happened. And so I went from that to working for a great company, but sitting in a cubicle, you know, in a, in a, and I told my wife one of, after my, one of my first days, I was like, I finally get that movie Office Space now. I get <laughs> the jokes because that's sort of what I'm at. But for me, it was more, I was like, who am I now? Like I was terrified by the notion that one day – I would have been out of the army longer than I'd been in it. And then I'd just be another guy sitting in a cubicle. And, and, and then at the same time, I was going through a lot of, I didn't know, I think I met Mike once because we went over to the SEAL compound. We were supposed to do a mission and didn't. And so I didn't know those guys. I didn't, but they died on my watch. And I felt like I should know them or I should. And so I'd, I'd spent a whole bunch of time trying to find out more about them, to understand them, to figure it. Well, there's still time. Yeah. I mean, and, and I'm still around. Yeah, no, you're right. And I, and I have gotten to know more of them now and stuff, but it was, it was just, it was hard to deal with. And the other person who helped me a lot um, was a guy named Nate self who wrote a book called two wars. And so Nate um, actually lives in Texas as well. He was a ranger, um, during Anaconda, he was the platoon leader. And so on Roberts Ridge, um, where Neil Chapman, or excuse me, Neil Roberts was a seal who fell out of the back of the Chinook and was killed. And then Roberts and his first name, excuse me, was the, um, air force combat controller that was also killed. Roberts was awarded the medal of honor. Um, the, the seal that was, um, or excuse me, Chapman was awarded the Medal of Honor. The, the SEAL that was Robert's team leader, his, his call signs slab, he was awarded the Medal of Honor. Um, Nate was sent to go try and rescue um, what they thought were Roberts and Chapman, and his helicopter was shot down. Um, his, a bunch of his rangers were killed, and so he secured that mountaintop, and then the ta- Taliban um, counterattacked, wounded a bunch more of his guys. He killed the Taliban, secured the mountaintop, and said, okay, we're good. Send me a helicopter because these guys are going to die, and they wouldn't send one. And they said, you know, we've already had one helicopter shot down. We had another uh, um, badly damaged. We're not going to send one until nightfall. And so against everything um, Nate could do, he had to just sit there and watch these guys die. And, And that was his story. And so... He, you know, he didn't, when I got to know him and we kind of swapped stories, he just looked at me and he said, it wasn't your fault. And it wasn't, like I said, there wasn't anything magical about those words, but coming from somebody who had been there and experienced it um, was completely different. It wasn't anything my wife hadn't told me. It wasn't anything, everybody, but it's the, and that's what I tell other veterans. I'm like, that's why it's so important to stay connected to that community it's not that you have all the answers. It's that you have that shared experience. It's the same thing. If you found out tomorrow you had stage four cancer, the person you'd want to talk to is somebody that survived stage four cancer, right? And as a veteran, you have that to offer to other veterans. But what happens is that when you leave the service, you inadvertently cut yourself off from anybody who can offer that to you. And, and that's why... I think that's one of the why, reasons why the suicide rate is so high. You know, a number of years ago, 
we reached the point where we were losing more vets to suicides than, than we were to combat operations. And I think in a large part it's that is because when you're in the military, you carry that because everybody's carrying something and it doesn't seem odd. But when you leave and you have the time to process that on your own, you're dealing with things you weren't dealing with before and you no longer have the people around you that can help you sort that out. And enough people with unbelievably sick sense of humor who can exactly get you through Exactly right. <laughs> exactly right. So my, one of my very good friends, Scott Brower, uh, who uh, passed somewhat recently, um, mm-hmm. a 20-year um, Navy SEAL veteran. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I this maybe the second time I met him or something. I was So I didn't know him that well at this point. I'm like, uh, so out of curiosity, have you seen the movie Alone Survivor? And he kind of shook me off. And I'm like, well, I'm just kind of curious, like, if you've seen it. Because I, I think out of all these movies of that genre, it's yeah. probably the most um, visually accurate. You know, all the all the things look sure. right in it. And, and hearing your story, there are some pieces I can tell already that should have been revised, like the weather, for instance. And, um, but it's still still relatively good story. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he shook me off again, like, no, I haven't. I'm like, oh, you should you should take it out. He's like, I'm, I'm not going to do that. And I'm like, I thought it was like one of those, like I don't watch movies or I yeah. don't want to pay for it or one of those yeah. kind of things. I'm like, I'll, I'll pay for it if it's one of those. I just, I'm kind of curious just what you think. Yeah. And he really was like shaking me off hard, like, and not like he was going to beat me up, but like stop yeah. with doing what you're doing right yeah. now. And I didn't, it didn't quite catch it at the time. So the very next time I saw him, I had time to think about it. And I'm like, I bet he actually knew some of those guys. Yeah. I bet that's what's Absolutely. going on here. And so I, I said, I, you know, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I wasn't trying to, and you know, incite mm-hmm. anything. I was just curious. But now that I think that you probably knew some of those guys, he's like, he's like, well, it's worse than that. Um, I was actually supposed to be, that was supposed to be my team. Um, we just got rotated out. Um, we were a very experienced team. We'd been in there for years. We knew exactly what we were doing and we would not have made those mistakes because there was a lot of mistakes that hadn't been made sure. that day. Um, and this was a brand new team. This was like, I think maybe one of the very first missions they were on and, uh, they made some mistakes and, um, it, you could tell it was just killing him. Yeah. Um, so I, I think there's other people out there who yeah. feel a great deal of personal responsibility and, you know, yeah. Yeah. There's plenty of blame to go around, but I mean, shit happens too. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think the other part too, is you, yeah, I'm sure it's a great movie. Um, I haven't watched it either. I think when you, when you've been to combat and seen stuff like that, it's really hard to watch those movies. And so I, it would not, you know, my, my friends, the, once I, um, for the last 10 years, I've worked with companies that primarily our customers were, in special operations or the intelligence community. And so my coworkers, many of so Nate was a coworker, his sister platoon leader, Brandon Cates has been my boss two different times at two different companies. Um, Greg Glass is, was another ranger that was there on that day. And so when you see that, it becomes very hard to watch those kind of movies or realistic movies because it's not um, entertainment anymore. It, it reminds you of something that isn't um, too fun to watch anymore, I think. I hear you. So how did you make that transition into the workforce? I mean, it didn't seem like you stayed uh, being a civilian too long. I didn't. um, I think veterans in general, I think what makes us different is 
is that we're driven more by a sense of purpose than, um, or, or, or potentially that we want to find our sense of purpose in what we do. And so, um, company I worked at was fantastic, but I needed something that connected me more to, to kind of that old life again. And so at the time the FBI was, um, very heavily recruiting folks from the military and, uh, they were recruiting folks who had special operations experience and stuff to form a pipeline for HRT, their hostage rescue team. And then they also needed folks who were pilots um, because HRT has its own little Air Force kind of thing that's also flown by FBI agents. And so... So um, this isn't just flying in circles all day. This is like actually landing. <laughs> no, no, it's the real <laughs> deal. They are... Um, HRT is... I had a couple of my classmates try out um, for HRT. One of them was a former force recon Marine. He didn't make it. One of them was a, um, he wasn't a CIA paramilitary officer. He's a CIA officer, but he had done tours of duty in Asadabad and stuff like that. Not sitting behind a desk in Washington. He didn't make it like HRT selection is brutal and they mirror it off of um, what, or they, I, they take a lot from like how um, Delta Force does their selections and things like that, or the, the Army Special Forces selections. And so, um, so they also needed um, pilots. And so, what um, the recruiter did was kind of fast track my application um, with the handshake deal that I would come back and assess for the HRT Air Force. I can't remember what the real name is. And, and, um, at the two year mark or whatever, when I was eligible to do that. And so I went and I'd never wanted to be in law enforcement. Wasn't anything that was um, terribly interested to me, but, and I applied to everything I think that I could, um, that I thought would give me a sense of purpose again. And the FBI um, said yes. And then when I learned more about the FBI, you know, there's um, five different, um, career fields, if you will, uh, you can be an FBI special agent. So there's criminal, which is all I knew about, you know, and, and it's, and it, you know, spans the difference from bank robbery, um, to white collar crime and everything in between. And then there's intelligence, counterintelligence, um, counterterrorism and cyber. And so four of those, um, I guess everything but criminal have national security, um, aspects to them as well. And so that I was very much interested in. And so I got to go to Quantico and I got tracked um, what's called or counterintelligence. But when I went to my first field office, I was put instead in what's called the FIG. It's the field intelligence group. And so your job is to run and recruit assets or what you call assets in the intelligence community, what you call sources in the FBI. And it was a blast. And so you're, it can range the gamut from an agent comes to you and says, hey, I'm working this particular counterterrorism um, case and I need a source um, to better understand what's going on in this organization. Here are a couple potential ones. You know, can you pitch one for me and do it? Or it could be we also had the latitude to work kind of more national questions where, you know, if there are a series of standing um, questions that are things like you can imagine, like I want to know X about this country or something. Well, if you find somebody who might know that then you have the ability to go pitch them and learn it and so it's and it's taught very very well like sometime after september 11th um the fbi realized that the way that they were running sources before was kind of the old cop method where i want you to tell me about this motorcycle gang so i'm going to arrest you and and hold it over your head and you're going to become my source where 
after 9-11, when they got the FBI had a much bigger um, counterterrorism focus, they realized you can't recruit sources that same way, right? Because a lot of them haven't, you might want to know about a particular community or you want, well, they haven't done anything wrong. You can't hold that above them. And so they really had to look to agencies like the CIA to say, how do you guys do it? How do you recruit assets? How do you do, what's your methodology for doing that? Because they're not a criminal organization, right? And so um, the FBI taught that very, very well. And you got in, in Quantico, it was, you know, they would bring in role players and actors and stuff like that. And then that, those classes would continue when you went to your field office and before you'd make a pitch. My training agent was incredible. He had a master's degree in psychology and worked undercover. And so you'd walk through how you're going to do the pitch. What are the things the person potentially would say? How how are you going to navigate that? And and it's, it was fascinating work, and I loved it. I felt like I was actually in a, a Tom Clancy uh, movie or something <laughs> like that. And I was lucky enough at the time to work to make the SWAT team, and so was doing all of that. And so when, much to um, my shame, when the FBI HRT recruiter came back and said, hey, I want you to come assess for the FBI Air Force, I'm like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm staying in Dallas. We like it here. I'm going to continue to work there. And so I had a great time doing that until um, the what's in, in an FBI office, they have what's called the SAC, uh, the special agent in charge. And then they have what are called the ASACs, which are kind of his or her um, deputies that run different areas. And so my ASAC called me in one day and he's like, man, you're doing a great job in the FIG. You had and so there's, I can't remember what the terminology is, but when you find out a piece of information that gets disseminated beyond the FBI, gets disseminated, you know, to the greater community, that makes um, that office look real good, that makes you look real good. And so you, um, it's called statting, where there are, as an FBI agent, there are things that you get credit for. Every, and so all of those things combined for your review and you get stats for, you know, an arrest or whatever it was. And it, how good your paperwork is. How good your paperwork <laughs> is. Well, my my stats were more driven around the, the assets and stuff I was recruiting. And so I we had some pretty good stats. We were having a good time. And so he called me and he said, you're doing a great job, uh, but you're a new agent. You shouldn't really be in this squad we're going to move you to an investigative squad. And I was like, oh, well, I'm, I'm counterintelligence, so I'm going to the counterintelligence squad. And he's like, no, you're going to the political corruption squad. And so I went from going and, and meeting dudes in shady alleys and doing Tom Clancy stuff to sitting in a cubicle again. And um, here's your you know, 10,000 emails and trash bag full of bank records. And, try, and I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm... This is not uh, what I came into the FBI to do. This wasn't, I, I felt like I was losing that sense of purpose thing of being that reason for getting up in the morning. And so at the time, Nate had, had formed this small company with a bunch of his um, former army friends. And he's like, why don't you come do this with us? And so um, I don't know if I would have stayed in that intelligence squad, if I would have said yes. But by then I was like, yes, I'll come do that. And so since then, I've always had a connection to the customer like those seals, right? Where I knew that I was giving America's sons and daughters a piece of equipment that they were going to take overseas and it was going to make them do their job better and it was going to make them safer. And so the last company I worked for, it's called Amatrine. We were a the American subsidiary of an Israeli startup. And so we make 
uniforms and hide sites and such that make you invisible in the thermal and visual um, spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so we're giving stuff to customers and I know that when they wear our stuff, they're going to be invisible and they're going to come back home. Like that's the, I have a, I have a great friend who works for Procter and Gamble and, and he makes diapers and the world needs diapers. And you know, I have three kids. We needed diapers. I, I don't <laughs> think I could ever work a job where I was making diapers because You'll need diapers again someday. I will. I will. Eventually. (laughs) I might change my mind then. But I looked for that, for that thing that tied me back to the people that I cared about and was able to do that. And now those are the people that I write about. You know, when I, when my first book without sanction came out, my protagonist is a guy named Matt Drake, who's a case officer for the defense intelligence agency. And I had a radio interviewer ask me, are you Matt Drake? And I'm like, I, I am absolutely not Matt Drake, but I've stood in the same room with men who could be. And so now I get to hear their stories and I get to, to if you look at my Clancy books, a lot of the characters in there with their permission are actually people, all of them are out of the military now who were special operations. But since I'm the writer, what I do is Brandon Cates is, was an Army Ranger, and I made him a Navy SEAL. And I took a friend that was a Navy SEAL and made him a Green Beret just to keep things interesting. But it's, <laughs> you know, it's kind of that testament where I've been very lucky to know very interesting people. And um, I get to open kind of a, a window into that community and say, here's what, like, you hear about them a lot. Um, you hear them on TV. You might see movies and stuff. These are the people that I know that are really like that. And Here's a great story about him. And that's what I get to do now. Yeah, so I was going to ask you, how did you get involved with the Tom Clancy Jr. series? Like, how does that, yeah. how does one get proposition to do that? Sheer luck. <laughs> Sheer luck. Um, so there are a lot of Toms to this story. I apologize that in advance. But my editor is a guy named Tom Colgan, and he is edited uh, for everybody from Janet Ivanovich to Lee Child to Tom Clancy when he was still alive. And so... When Tom passed away about 10 years ago, the Clancy estate came back to the publisher and said, hey, we want Tom's legacy to continue. And so much every time a new Tom Clancy book of mine comes out, there's always one guy on uh, Facebook that's like, you should be ashamed of yourself for profiting off Clancy's name. And I'm like, I promise you, I'm not the one profiting off of it. But (laughs) just like, you know, George Lucas created this incredible universe called Star Wars, and then he invited people to come in and create there, right? And say, use these characters, use this world, make it bigger, um, tell better stories. And so what happens is um, Tom Colgan gets to pick the writers that come in and write for the Clancy estate. And so he was, and still is, my editor for my Matt Drake series. And when I turned in my second book, which was called The Outside Man, when you turn in a book, your editor comes back with notes, and it's and you have what's called the editorial call. And it's kind of like being in fourth grade and forgetting your homework, and you got to stand in front of the teacher. <laughs> and so you just want to make sure you have the answers. And so we got to the end of the call, and I'm like, okay, I had all the answers. And he very much did this Columbo-esque thing where he's like, I've got one more question for you. Would you be interested in writing in the Clancy world? And I'm like, what did he just say? I think he said Tom Clancy. And so that was... Um, yeah, I definitely need clarification if someone said yes, that to me. <laughs> yes. And I jaw kind of hit the floor. And at first, honestly, I was going to say no because I still had a full-time job at the time. And with writing, especially as fiction writing... 
the work is there usually before the money is. And so, you know, when you're, when you're a young rider starting out, your advances aren't, aren't um, usually enough to live on. And I was like, there's no way I can keep my full-time job and write. Cause what I would have had to do was write a book every five months, basically write one of my books, write one of the Clancy books. And so I told my wife and I was like, you know, I was really flattered. This is what they offered, but I'm going to tell them no. And she's like, you're going to what? And I'm like, I can't do this. And then she's like, family meeting. And so the kids come in and everything. And so we ended up making a plan. We're like, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try and do both. Uh, my boss, Brandon, was amazing. And at one point, I'm like, look, man, take 25% or 20% of my payback. I got to have Fridays off. Let me try and do this. And he's like, okay, we'll make it work for two months. See if you can do it. And um, at the end of it, I was able to to transition and, and go write the Clancy books. And then that led to next year, I'm, I'm going to take over um, the Vince Flynn Mitch Rapp series. And so I was super, super excited about that too. And it's a really, it's a humbling and kind of a terrifying experience at the same time. I have a friend, uh, who's a writer named Josh Hood that writes in the Jason Bourne universe. And he said, you know, it's kind of like you get handed the keys to your dad's, you know, classic Stingray convertible. And he says, take it for a spin. And you want to drive that thing as fast as it'll go, but bring it home without any new dings in it. And so, you know, that's the, you're very much aware that you're standing on the shoulders of giants, both the original writers and the ones that came, you know, before you. But at the same time, you're like the first time I sat down at my computer and type Jack Ryan. And I'm like, I can't believe I get to write this guy. Like this is the character that made me want to be a writer. And now, you know, I get to write him and hopefully I won't be the guy that burns him into the ground. You know, hopefully I can tell a good story with it. And so, yeah, it's been, I think anything in life, right. Is, is part showing up every day and being really willing to work hard. And part of it's being lucky and being in the right place at the right time. No kidding. That's super lucky. So tell me about the new book. I mean, how did you come about it? How how does it dovetail into all this? I mean, it seems like your history has a lot to do with these stories. Yeah, so my fourth book is called, in the Matt Drake series, is called Forgotten War. And I'll tell you just a little bit about uh, Matt for background. So I wrote three books that didn't sell. And um, before the first book in the Matt Drake series is called Without Sanction Did. And so when I was talking to my editor, he said, you know, if you're a new writer writing fiction what you have to do is do something that's the same but different and so you have to fit into the genre you're in but you can't copy what everybody else has done and so when I sat down to write without sanction I knew I wanted to base it around this character but I made a couple choices that were different than the rest of the genre so the first I'm a huge Nelson DeMille fan and he was kind enough to blurb Forgotten War for me And one of his books or one of his series is a John Corey series. And he writes about this New York um, detective and he writes in a first person voice, which is just writer talk for saying that the character uses I, the character tells you the story. And I read his first book in that series called Plum Island. And I told my wife after I got done reading it, like I would go read about John Corey going to the gas station because he's so funny and it's so engaging. And when I looked at this genre, there aren't a lot of writers who write that style. So I said, all right, I'm going to have this guy called Matt Drake. I'm going to write him as a witty first-person protagonist voice. The second thing is I looked out and saw there were a lot of CIA guys running around, a lot of special forces folks, but 
I got to be familiar with an organization called the DIA, which is the Defense Intelligence Agency. So it has very same mission as the CIA, but it reports through the military chain of command. And so there's all kinds of great conflict there because the CIA and DIA squabble over assets and you know have turf wars. And so I said, all right, I'm going to take this guy, Matt, and make him a case officer in the DIA because, number one, that isn't something people have done. And number two, it's very similar to the job I did as an FBI agent, where my job was to recruit sources. Matt's job was to recruit assets. And the final thing I decided to do was to make him a former Army Ranger because so many of my friends were former Army Rangers, and it isn't something I saw in fiction a lot. And so Matt is a case officer for the DIA. He has a best friend um, who's named Frodo, who goes by his radio call sign Frodo, who was a former um, sniper in Delta Force. And so one of my close friends um, came from that organization as well. And in fact, he was his first assignment after um, making it um, through the operator training course and everything was Somalia. It was Black Hawk Down. And he served for, I think, 15 or 16 years in, in Delta Force. He's still my go-to person when I have questions and stuff. And so Frodo takes a lot um, from him. And so my first um, book, you see them together, and now four books later, I've gotten a lot of um, emails and Facebook posts and social media from folks that say, we really want to see how Matt and Frodo came together originally. Because when Without Sanction starts, and that's the other thing I did, is I finally got brave enough to put some of the things that I wrestled with in my book. And so when Without Sanction begins... Matt has just come back from a tour in Syria and he lost an asset and his assets family and Frodo was horribly injured by an IED and Matt thinks the entire thing is his fault, which is, you know, a, a, a shoes that I had been in before. And so when the books start, Frodo has already been, he's lost um, his arm and part of his leg and he can't work in his old job anymore. He still works with the DIA, but he isn't Matt's bodyguard. And so I thought, it would be really fun to write kind of an origin story to show the two of them working together. But where am I going to set that? And so I was thinking about that in the summer of 2021 as Afghanistan was crumbling, as, as we were withdrawing from Afghanistan. And, you know, as I was watching it happen, I was getting that all these... surreal. I mean, it was awful. Like I said before, we were, I think, most... I don't want to say most veterans because I don't want to speak for veterans, but most of the veterans I talked to were fine with us leaving Afghanistan. You know, we certainly didn't want our sons and daughters to go there a generation later, but it couldn't end like that because because then if it crumbles, what does that mean for the brothers and sisters that we lost there? What does it mean for the years of our life? You know, less than one quarter of 1% of American citizens have served in Iraq and Afghanistan. But that one quarter of 1%, most of them, I'm the exception to the rule, most of them have served multiple times in Afghanistan or uh, and or Iraq. My, my best friend, Kelsey Smith, he and I were troop commanders together in Afghanistan. It was his helicopters I was flying. He deployed, I think, a total of six times, each of them a year-long deployment. And so you've given up so much of your life for what? you know, And, and not just that, but... Afghanistan is kind of like the foundation for everything war on terror related, right? And so if you knock that stone out, then does Iraq come crumbling down? Does, does all the sacrifices everybody made in all of those different places for the last 20 years, was any of that worth it? And, and so you had that. On one hand, you're thinking, 
was it worth it? On the other hand, you know, I was I was half joking and half not texting my old first sergeant who's who works for an organization that provided helicopters and munitions to the Afghan um, army, and I'm like, are there still helicopters there? And he's like, I can tell you what what hangar the rockets are. And so you're kind of half joking. Well, maybe we could. I checked flights to Kabul. Maybe we could help out. <laughs> right, joking. And then you see people like the Pineapple Express that pony up and go and do it. And yeah. and you think in a nation's history, I not since Dunkirk probably have civilians stepped up and said, "Not on our watch. We're not going to leave those people behind." Because by God, we told them if they stood shoulder to shoulder with us, that America would take care of it. And so. If our government isn't going to do it, we're going to do it. And so I'm watching all of this happen. And uh, a good friend of mine's a writer named Nick Petrie. He writes a series called The Drifter. And he told me once that in a great book, what the writer's trying to do is answer a question for themselves in the pages. And so I'm looking at this and I'm like, what would Matt do? What would Matt and Frodo do? How would this play out? And so while Forgotten War, which comes out on Tuesday, is the name of the book, it is certainly fiction Many of the things that happen in there uh, really happen, and and if it didn't, they're based on operations that happen. But the conversations between the characters that form the emotional backbone very much reflect the conversations I had with fellow Afghan veterans as everybody's trying to process it. And so the way that the book starts is that um, Matt and Frodo are in a bar and two Army CID officers arrest Frodo for a war crime. And for a war crime that took place 10 years ago when he and Matt were first in Afghanistan together. And so what Matt can't figure out is that Frodo wants to plead guilty to it and he won't talk about it. He just says, I'm guilty, I'm guilty. And Matt, Matt's like, I was there with you. You didn't murder anybody. And he says, I'm guilty. And so Matt starts trying to find the other um, ODA, the other special forces guys who were in the building with them that night, and they're all dying one by one under mysterious circumstances. And so he figures the only way he can clear Frodo's name is to go to Afghanistan and find the interpreter, who's the last surviving person that was with that team, and get that guy to testify as what happened. But he's trying to go into Afghanistan as everybody else is going out. And so you see the the backdrop of Afghanistan. You see 10 years earlier what actually went down in that building and what happened with Frodo. And it's, you know, it was very much, I think you have to be careful as a writer, especially a writer of fiction, because your first job is to tell a damn good story. Your first job is to get readers to turn the page. And I think I think books that start out with a premise that I'm going to preach to you about X, Y, or Z subject, readers don't want that. They want a great story, but I think also readers resonate with veracity. Like they can see in the pages, even though it's fiction, there's something there that's real. And that's what I've been getting a lot in the reviews so far for Forgotten War is like, I'm not used to seeing this sort of emotional impact in a book in this genre. Like it's a great story. It kept me changing the, turning the pages, but I finally understand, I think now what veterans of Afghanistan went through and what they saw as Afghanistan was crumbling. And so again, it's, it's meant to be a great story. It's meant to turn pages. It's not meant to, to preach at anybody, but I think if you're to write a, a great book or maybe hopefully even a good book, you got to be willing to pour the stuff that scares you into those pages. And that was certainly what was scaring me at the time. Mm-hmm. 
Do you write in any of the civilian stuff you did? Are the FBI involved in any of this, uh, these cases or local PD or anything like that? Yeah, I don't write. Um, I don't really write about the FBI, but the intelligence community certainly plays a big role in it. And again, it's not it's not stuff that I learned in the FBI. I think it's more um, the folks. Like I said, I, I've just been lucky enough to rub shoulders with some really interesting people. And most of them, when you buy them a beer, tell you the most incredible stories. And there, there are some that you're like, I'm going to use pieces of that. And I always ask them if I can. There are some, the stories are so great where you're like, I'd love to use that, but nobody would believe it. There was a, I had a customer who was a Green Beret and we were having a beer. He was a captain and he had been an enlisted Green Beret, went to West Point, met his wife there at West Point. She was a fellow cadet. They get married. She goes and actually flies Apaches. He goes back to the infantry, goes back to becoming a Green Beret. The marriage doesn't work out. They divorce. He is in Iraq with his guys. They're ambushed, and he calls for gunship support. It's his ex-wife that's overhead <laughs> shooting rockets. And I'm like, that is so good, but nobody would believe it. And so I think, you know, you have to, you have to tell a good story first and foremost. Wait, ex-wife? Yeah. Oof. After, and I was like, was it a good divorce? And he's like, no. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. They wouldn't believe that ending. No, no. <laughs> they made it out alive. Not. They did. Make, he's like, I'm still here. <laughs> That's really funny. So, uh, corruption, is that something that kind of meant something to you as you were like, you wanted to tackle a corruption issue? Or is this really more about corruption just played a part in? as it related to what you were trying to talk about. You mean as far as the book? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I didn't look as much. Certainly Afghanistan is a study in corruption. There's no two ways about it. Um, and I think, I think one of the, one of the things that make Americans exceptional is we tend to look at the rest of the world and we look at them through our eyes and say, surely if these values are important to us, they're going to be important to you no matter what country you're in and you'll fight for them. And unfortunately that hasn't um, proven to be true. And on the flip side, I think that is why the people in Ukraine right now resonate so much with the Western world, because you see, you know, down to, you know, men and women who were teachers and nurses and stuff willing to fight for their country. In Afghanistan, you just didn't see that by and large. There were certainly Afghans that were courageous. There were commando units that did it. But as a populace, there wasn't the same dedication to that. And, you you know, during the original invasion, when the, the, the famous um, horse soldiers were going in, there were CIA officers who were walking in with bags of cash. And the Afghan sentiment is that, you can't buy loyalty, but you can rent it. And so that is, and we tried, we tried as not, not we, but America tried to root that out. They tried, and it's just so ingrained in the culture and so ingrained in how they did business. And so I didn't, I didn't make it a point um, in Forgotten War to talk as much about the corruption as just to say, here is, you can either, you can either see the battlefield as how you want it to be or accept it how it is. And what I think maybe would have done us as a nation from a strategic standpoint better to say this is how it is and here is what our national objective is and, and we're willing to do this but we're not going to be able to convert this into a democracy or into a western style democracy and something and so i didn't what i spent more of the book's focus on was just the what astounded me was going back to the pineapple express and stuff was this willingness 
for civilians to go in and do what the military um, wasn't allowed to do or or to and and so that's what you see is is um, Matt and this band of of veterans that he puts together doing their own version of the Pineapple Express to go get um, this interpreter. It, I didn't make a a big play on corruption because it is what it is. I was supposed to grab coffee with Tim Kennedy, and mm. uh, he was he yeah. ditched me to go to Afghanistan. So I will forever hold that against him. Um, and then another friend of mine. Um, former CISO of the Pentagon, um, apparently he was involved, but from the logistics perspective, because it turns out it's very difficult to know mm-hmm. who's who on the ground. Yep. And so, you know, they might have the right name, but they're not the same person, yep. or they might say that, that they're that person, they're not that yep. person, and and comms are unencrypted. And yep. so just figuring yep. out who's who and where was yeah. an enormous, enormous challenge, and they had to do it, you know, practically overnight. Yeah. Um, so... I got to see it from the other side, I guess, mm-hmm. um, from sitting back in the lawn chair and just watching it all go down for my friends. But it's pretty, pretty rough. No, and that's when you talk about figuring out who's who that that comes up in Forgotten War, um, because one of the things that the U.S. military did or the U.S. in general, there are a couple of agencies that did it was implemented this huge biometric program where a lot of Afghans only have one name, right? And so they got the biometric identifiers on all these people and then allowed that to fall into the hands of the Taliban. And so you literally have Taliban that are going, doing Irish scans and saying, that guy worked for the Americans, shoot him in the head. That And it's just, it was tragic. And that was, when I read it, I'm like, this can't be true. This can't be true. And then you see how it's happening. And so that became part of Forgotten War too. And is one of the things that's driving the story is this database. I made the problem worse as novelists do for books, but instead of having most of what you saw were kind of the handheld devices that would, that would do biometric scans. And so you had the data on that hard drive for however many people it connected to but you didn't have the entire database of everyone, maybe, necessarily. And so I did that for Forgotten War. I'm like, what would happen if they left the entire database? And who would want that? Because even those little biometric scanners, like the Russians, the Iranians, Chinese, everybody was trying to get their hands on that because it's, the number one, the technology. But number two, you could identify every single asset, every person who helped the Americans. I mean, it's it takes, you know, a while ago, the, the Chinese hacked the... Um, the OPM records that when you fill out your security clearance, you tell everything that somebody could use to corrupt you. And the Chinese stole all of that and have, and so everybody that has a security clearance, they know your background. They know, they know they would have the ability to, to, um, to come up with a pitch that would target just you. Well, this has taken it a step further where they could identify you by your saliva, by your iris scan, by your blood type. So that made it into forgotten war too. A funny story about that. Um, we know that it was the Chinese who did the OPM hack, not not just theorize, yep. because what happened is somewhere along the line, we hacked into China and we found the OPM data sitting there and we actually sent emissaries over to try to show them how to protect it so that other countries wouldn't wow. get the data. I never heard that. That's crazy. Not right? That's crazy. So my friends are sort of half involved in that. But... Um, well, that kind of begs another question. So the FBI has crazy detailed records on people. Yeah. OPM is another good example on this. What do you think about data collection? Is that is that something you think we should be doing more of or stop doing or what? Yeah, that that's a really hard subject because even even if you take the FBI side, right? There was um, in the news 
last week that there was a new hack for the iPhone that they'd allow um, that you could get in and get all your passwords, get everything from that. The reason why um, a bunch of the, I, don't, I can't remember if Texas has done it yet or not, is banning TikTok is because TikTok then takes everything that's on your iPhone, all the data there, all your browsing history, all your passwords. And so we are with just our cell phones. Think about what you think is secure there from a, um, from your credit cards, your bank statements, your passwords and everything. And now that's vulnerable and we've put it in there and voluntarily. I think the, I think from a government perspective, yeah, we have to be super, super careful about what data we collect because I think, I think there was a time where we as an American people viewed the government as good at their job as, um, not infallible, but for we we won the Cold War, right? Like we came on. We're we have. We're if the government says they're going to protect my data, they're going to protect my data. What we're seeing now is the opposite of that, right? That we can't assume the default position can't be assumed can't be that we assume that the government is going to protect the data that it's collected, that they're going to be good at their job. I think, especially when it comes to data, we have to start from the opposite perspective. Let's assume that this will be at some point in inadvertently, you know, via the OPM or or on purpose by somebody like the airman that just leaked all the classified documents everywhere, right, gets forfeited. And so what is what do we feel comfortable collecting on the American people knowing that it might be put at risk, it might be put out there? And I, and I think we should, instead of saying coming with the attitude of we're the government, you can trust us, we'll protect it. We should start from the other thing and say the burden of proof is on you, the government, to be able to display, yes, you can protect this information before you ask people from it. Because it is, you're right. I mean, the the data breaches and stuff that we get now are just, are crazy. And you're putting individual Americans potentially at risk because of that. Mm-hmm. And it kind of begs the question, like, <clears throat> let's say you're on the other side of the fence and yep. you want to defect or want to help or whatever. Are you sure you trust the U.S. government with that Absolutely. data or any government? Not just the United States. We're not the only ones who are vulnerable. But um, why would you entrust some Absolutely. some agent with this data? And that's always been true from an espionage perspective, right? There were when I was in the FBI Academy, they would beat into our heads um, the two Aldrich Ames, who was um, from the CIA, that was a huge spy for a number of years and then robert hansen his counterpart in the fbi (laughs) it's different spelling though (laughs) wait a minute i knew your name sound familiar and and what was awful during that period of time is the cia and the fbi were fighting because they were each convinced that the other had the leak and they both had the leak right and so people died because of those two men like assets were rolled up overseas and killed because of those two men you know we recently had a couple years ago where we were we were talking it became news that our many of our assets in china were rolled up and killed right because of some security breach somewhere and and so now that was that was maybe part of the accepted cost of doing business if you were an espionage if you were a spy or something but now you're you know i wonder that right you see leaks just across the government where people people their tax their tax information gets leaked their personal information gets leaked and so yeah it makes you think what is safe and what 
what should I have to provide to the government knowing that the government is apparently not a safe data repository, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, kind of the opposite direction. The Chinese have taken a different tack, which is we're just going to put everybody's social credit score online. You'll be able to yeah. see who's who we're after and who, who we think is a spy or whatever. Just like right there, look at their social credit. There it is. And yeah. then you don't have to have jackbooted, you know, guys come into the door beating mm-hmm. stuff down because your entire cohort of people around you aren't going to have anything to do with you anymore because they're yeah. worried about their credit score going down. Yeah. So kind of reminds me a little of this one experiment this guy did this decades ago now, but he, he basically had a, a camera attached to him, um, which at that time sounded very strange. Now people do it all the time. <laughs> but at that time he just, he took photos of everywhere he went all day long and yeah. posted them to this website said exactly where he was going to go, who he was going to meet, basically a diary, but it was all public. Mm. Um, like, and crazy detail. Like, here's what I talked about. Here's who I'm meeting with. And because yeah. his fear, I think he was a, a journalist, but I think he was also had some information of whistleblower of some kind. Mm-hmm. His theory was, if I'm going to get abducted, you're going to at least know who did it. Um, you're going to at least get yeah. one photo of him kind of thing. And uh <sighs> I mean, there's a, there's a lot of sense to that, um, but also, I mean, we're already being monitored by a hundred different technologies yeah. around us at all times. Um, not you and I, of course, our phones are off for this, <laughs> <laughs> except for these three cameras here. Uh, but I, I mean, I don't know where I land on that. I, I, I guess I'm totally against all forms of monitoring, but at mm-hmm. the same time, I totally understand why you know, a government would want it. And, and a guy like me, I do a lot, develop a lot of technologies for companies mm-hmm. and um, I've developed a lot of uh, decloaking technologies, mm-hmm. ways to find out who people really are behind the keyboard. And so I am in many ways, the reason a lot of these things are problematic, mm-hmm. but I am also trying to stop those things at the yeah. same time. So I've, yeah. I've kind of landed on both sides of this issue in different parts of my career. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's hard. I think, I think fundamentally what makes or one of the things that makes the United States different or one of our founding ideals is this notion of that what you own is yours, that you are allowed to have personal property, that that's the foundation of individual rights, that I can buy something and it's mine and the government can't come and take it from me, right? It belongs to me. And I think our personal data and the information kind of falls into that sphere too, right? Like that's yours that belongs to you. The government shouldn't be able to just come and take that from you. But it, it has certainly gotten a whole lot more complicated where you were talking about with phones, where we surrender a lot of that stuff, right? We voluntarily say, hey, for the convenience of carrying it all in my iPhone or getting a cookie to this website or whatever, I'm willing to give up my position, my personal data. my And so where does that line lie, right? Is it still yours if you give it up? Is it, you know, does somebody have to ask you for it? And I, I think, I don't know, it's, it is certainly an evolving debate for sure. Mm-hmm. So what is next for your series? Are you going to do another book? Uh, books, plural? Or what's your, what's your Yeah, so this year's pretty crazy for me. So I have um, three books <laughs> that are coming out. I've got Forgotten War that comes out on the 25th of April. And then I have Flashpoint, which is my third Clancy novel that comes out on the 23rd of May. And then I am frantically finishing the edits and stuff for um, Weapons Grade, which comes out in September. So after that, I'm going to transition to my first Mitch Rap book. 
And I don't know what I'm going to work on after that. I'm, I'm lucky enough. I have a fantastic editor who does the my Clancy books and my Matt Drake books. And what I basically told them is I'll check in with you in December. And so <laughs> it could be another Matt Drake book. It could be another Clancy book. It could be a standalone, but that's a good problem to have. Are these going to get converted into TV shows or movies? And do you think that is like the dream of all writers? And so you get, it looks, it looks easier now or more um, promising because you have people like Jack Carr's a friend of mine and his series on Amazon, um, the terminal list, Came mm-hmm. out. Mark Graney's a friend of mine. His series, The Gray Man, came out. But Brad Taylor's a friend of mine, and he's been writing for 12 or 13 years and have never had anything. Brad Thor hasn't. Vince Flynn. And so it's the somebody who is more experienced or farther down this path um, than I was said, you know what, don't don't plan your mortgage payments on the TV stuff coming. If it happens, it happens great, <laughs> but just keep writing and hope for the best. And that's where I'm at right now. I work in this business. I don't plan on that either. <laughs> it's, it's funny because it just, you see so many writers get their hearts broken because I know Hollywood a tiny, tiny bit. One of my friends is Chris Hottie and he made his living as a screenplay writer before he came um, and writed books. And he's had a couple like Sniper and stuff like that made. But the majority of him, uh, which I think is common with screenplays anyway, get optioned and then never made into movies. But writers, we don't know that. And so you see your friend, they're like, oh my gosh, my book got optioned. It's going to get made. And they're like, eh. It's just <laughs> like, that's great. I would love to have mine get optioned. But my friend, uh, Taylor Moore, he writes, he's a former CIA officer. He writes a great series. His first book is called Downrange. When it got optioned, his film agent called him in and said, listen, you have a better chance of going to space than this becoming a movie. So take the move, money, be happy, but don't count on this making the mortgage payments. Yeah, got a. You can have a cup. You can get there and change. Exactly. And shaking it. Exactly. Alms for the poor writer. <laughs> um, well, that's great. Well, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, how do they find the book and all that stuff? Yeah, so Forgotten War comes out next Tuesday, April 25th, and you can find it anywhere they sell books. But the easiest way to keep track of me is my website is donbentleybooks.com. It's B-E-N-T-L-E-Y. And so if you go there, you can sign up for my newsletter. I talk about everything I'm working on. Um, if I know it, my newsletter um, subscribers find out first. If you're a social media kind of person, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and all of them are just at Bentley Donby. So I always love to hear from uh, readers. If you send me an email, I promise I'll write you back. So even if you wow, mean. Wow, that's a big Yeah, and I get, I get some mean ones. It's funny. I, th- I think most people. I might write you a mean one just to see what do happens. Do it. Because <laughs> I get, I get, when I write them back, I figure if you've taken the time to write me an email, I'll write you back. And they're like. I thought I'd hear from your people, not you. I'm like, listen, <laughs> I do not have people, my friend. It is me and me only. That's it. <laughs> I love it. Well, Don, this has been a pleasure, man. Likewise. Yeah. Thank you so much Thanks for having for me. On. Yeah.